2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 15. Paul, as I mentioned, spends two chapters talking about offerings and giving. We're only just getting started. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, reading verses 7 through 15. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes, but as you excel in everything, and he's talking, of course, to the Corinthians, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Uh, I read uh, just a little while ago that the average American spends 50% of his or her time thinking about money. Um, In the broad sense of the word, how to get it? Is there a pay raise on the way? How to spend it? What to buy? Where to invest it? Paying bills? Worrying about paying bills? Thinking about inflation? Worrying if one has enough? Engaged in online bill paying? Online banking? A whole host of things. 50% of our time spent thinking about money. Now, I'm not going to vouch for the 50% part. I don't know if that's exactly so or not. But whatever the percentage is, money is essential to life. And we do indeed, whatever the percentage is, we spend a lot of time focusing on it. But when we think about money, we don't usually think about giving. Other than, sad to say, sometimes reasons why we can't. Oh, it's too hard. You know, Pastor, I've gotten myself into way too much debt. I have too many financial obligations. But trust me, I'll I'll give something. I'll give something. Don't worry about it. You know, once I get a better job, uh, if the harvest is a little bit better this year, once the car is paid for, once the kids are out of college, once I get a promotion... Once I have some money left over with, yeah, I'll I'll give, just trust me on that. But as we've seen, as we began looking at this chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that wasn't the attitude of the Macedonians, as Paul opens the 8th chapter of his letter. We saw a group of believers, we've met them already in the first six verses, a group of believers who gave from the heart, 
They gave willingly. They gave eagerly. They gave way beyond what anyone else could have expected. When I think of that kind of giving, what have I ever experienced in my life that was comparable to this? I think back to April of 2011 when Laurel and I went to Kenya. And uh, there's several examples I could cite. Laurel will remember this one, I know. But we stayed uh, in uh, Liava, one of the orphanages. It's um, 7,000 feet above sea level. It's western Kenya, not far from the border with Uganda. And we stayed in uh, some very uh, primitive quarters there on, uh, on the orphanage uh, compound. Well, one night there was a knock at the door. It wasn't quite dark yet, but it was late afternoon, early evening. And when I went to the door, there was Pastor Enoch standing there. Uh, pastor of the church in Liavo. And those of you, I'm looking at some of you who've gone with me on some of these trips, you remember Pastor Enoch. He's about this tall, rather short. Uh, he's got this joyful smile and this warm personality, just welcoming and engaging in so many ways. And he had knocked on our door because he had a gift for us. And it was a live chicken. It was a gift of immense value. It was a gift for him to give it was a tremendous sacrifice. In Kenya, people are so poor, you don't eat beef, you don't eat chicken. You know, you get some eggs, you're not going to kill off one of your chickens. You get milk from the cow, hopefully. Um, maybe you have chicken once a year for Christmas, perhaps. Maybe not. And so there he stood at our door holding this live chicken. And here he was an immensely poor Christian, beyond any kind of poverty we understand in this country, giving beyond what he was able to give to a couple of rich Americans who never think twice about buying chicken at the store. That was striking to me. Those were the Macedonians. That's what they were like. But, but it was an offering from his heart. I'll never forget that, that, that gift that he gave. It was from his heart. It was a tangible expression of thanksgiving to God and thanksgiving to those of us who had come on that mission trip because he sat in my class. I was teaching him the word of God. How can I show my thankfulness to God for the fact that I've got teachers who have come to instruct me? I'll give the best that I have. I'll give away one of my handful of chickens. Those were the Macedonians. And so as I said, Paul in the opening verses of this chapter sets forth the example, the heart, the sacrifice of the Macedonians. And now, starting with verse 7, sentence number 2 in Paul's Greek text, he now turns to the Corinthians. And he urges them to join in the offering. And what I want you to notice with me this morning, and uh, there'll be a, a follow-up message on this, biblical truths regarding giving. I have five of them. I want to lay just four of them before you uh, very simply this morning. Here's the first one. It is that whatever a person's spiritual gifts may be, and Paul gives some examples of it in the first verse of our text, every Christian should desire to excel when it comes to giving. You, you notice Paul says to the Corinthians, you excel already in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness. Paul uh, giving a whole list of things that they excelled in as believers. And Paul, what does he say? Excel in this act of grace. Isn't that interesting? That's his word for offering. 
You can't miss grace all the way through two chapters here. See that you excel in the offering also, in this act of grace also. Now, when Paul speaks about excelling when it comes to giving, it's never in comparison to others. Understand that. You know, look how much I gave in comparison to X or to Y. I really excelled, didn't I? That's not at all what Paul is talking about. Paul doesn't say to the Corinthians, here's what the Macedonians give, see if you can outdo them. See if you can excel. You know, Paul isn't saying, you know, I'm going to be visiting Corinth in just a couple of months, so what I'd like you to do is get some cardstock and uh, some red magic markers and make two thermometers. Put them up in the church lobby. A lot of churches like to do that. So put up the thermometers in the church lobby and label one Macedonians, and I'll give you the dollar amount, and you can color in the thermometer up to how much they gave. And the other one's going to say, Corinthians, let's see if you can outdo them. Let's see if you can excel them in giving. If you understand what Paul is saying, that is, is not even close to what he's speaking about in this passage. You know, you need to try harder, see if you can beat them out on the financial sheet. What Paul is calling for, look back in, chapter, in, in verse 6 of this chapter. Paul speaks about Titus, who had already visited Corinth. And Titus had been instrumental in getting the collection started a year earlier. But because of problems in the church, the collection had gotten a little bit derailed. But, but Titus had been instrumental in getting this collection off the ground. And what, what Paul says basically is, all I'm urging you to do is just complete what you promised voluntarily to begin with. I'm not asking for anything more. What you voluntarily said, here's what we'd like to give, excel in doing that. That's all that Paul is saying. Complete what you promised, and you notice verse 11 in our text. Finish what you've started out of what you have. The Macedonians gave above and beyond. All glory be to God. If some of you want to do that, that's fine. But all I'm asking is what you voluntarily pledged, just give out of what you have. Excel at giving by finishing what you promised up front voluntarily and eagerly to do. So what I want you to understand is that if you're a believer, God calls you to excel at giving, no matter what your gifts are. Teaching, preaching, uh, gift of encouragement. You know, the New Testament lists all kinds of gifts. So whatever gifts you have, excel at giving as well. Now, in the context of our, of our chapter, Paul's obviously talking about money. There's no question about that. But think about giving in the broader sense of, of the word. Excelling when it comes to giving, how about of your time? How about excelling when it comes to giving of your talents? Your volunteerism. So, so here's the question I want to give to each one of you this morning. And each of you is going to answer it differently in your own heart. And the question is this, what does excelling at giving look like for you? I can't tell you what that is. Nobody else can tell you what that is. That's between you and the Lord. What does excelling at giving look like for you? Not in comparison. Don't look down the row and say, well, I think I'm doing more than that person is. No, that, that's not at all what Paul is talking about. Not in comparison to so-and-so in the church. None of that kind of thing. But given my unique circumstances, given my unique resources, what does excelling in giving look like for me? And you just answer that in your heart, honestly, before the Lord. That's what Paul's talking about in this passage. See that you excel in giving. One more thought on this before we go to number two is excelling in giving, when you rightly understand it, it's not a way to proclaim how much you can do for God. Look at what I give, Lord. 
Isn't that great? Look at how much time I volunteer. You sure are fortunate to have me because I give pretty generously in a number of ways. That's not the spirit at all. So but by giving, it's not a way to proclaim how much you do, you do for God, but how much Christ has done. That's what it's all about. All right, so whatever your spiritual gifts are, Paul would say to you and me, excel at giving. Excel at, If you're a teacher, excel at teaching Sunday school. Uh, if you're a Bible study leader, excel at that. If you're an encourager, you like to write cards and call people on the phone, excel at that. Whatever your gifts are. But among all the gifts that you excel at, don't forget this one. Excel at this matter of giving as well. All right, number two. Giving is proof, Paul says in this passage, that a Christian's professed love for God and neighbor is genuine. You notice, what does he write in verse 8? To prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine, Paul writes. So you notice he speaks about giving in terms of love. And I want to draw your attention to several other verses where this thought is, is carried forward. First uh, Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, where Paul says to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, everything that we teach, Timothy, don't forget about this, everything that we teach is so that believers become increasingly loving persons. Do you see that there? The aim of our charge is love, Paul says. A love that's practical. A love that issues from a clear conscience. A person whose life has been transformed by the grace of God, flowing from a sincere faith. Well, you say, I thought the aim of everything in the Christian life is so I could go to heaven. No, that's not it. The aim of all of life in every particular, is to glorify God. That's the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian life. It's to glorify God. And God is glorified, how? Not in theory, but when we love other people in tangible ways. Which means then that good deeds, and the Bible commends and commands good deeds. We're saved for good works. Ephesians chapter 2. So that's to be part of who we are. Good works, good deeds. All right, so the Bible speaks about and gives examples of many of them. So for the Corinthians, it was donating for the collection to help the poor believers in Judea and Jerusalem. That was a good thing. And you can think of here in this church, volunteering your time for some commendable endeavor. You can make a whole list of noteworthy and commendable things to be engaged in. And so whatever good things you might be doing, whatever you may be giving in whatever sense of the word, don't mean anything if they aren't motivated by and rooted in love. Uh, witness what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 3. He uses this example. He says, if I give away all I have, talk about a generous offering. Okay, you can't give more than 100%, can you? Suppose I would do that. And then further, I deliver my body to be burned. So it's a time of persecution and martyrdom. For the sake of others, I let myself be the one to be arrested so others can go free. Okay, what greater giving could that be? So Paul takes some extreme examples. If I give away everything I have and deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Gifts that are given need to spring from a heart of 
genuine love. So where does that genuine love come from? Well, go back to the first verses of the chapter. Paul speaks about the grace of God that was given to the Macedonians. He uses that word grace three times in the first sentence. And then he speaks about the abundance of joy that once these believers had experienced God's grace, there was a Holy Spirit-given joy that was in their hearts because they'd come to know the Lord, filled with His Holy Spirit. And so they had a joy which sprang from God's abundant, unmerited grace. And so that being so, you got grace and you got amazing joy, you got it together. When it comes to offering time, then what happened? Paul says that the grace of God combined with joy, even in the face of severe afflictions, Paul talks about that, the Macedonians weren't living an easy life. They had some real troubles and persecution. But they had God's grace and they had a joy that flowed out of that grace and it came and it overflowed in a wealth of generosity, Paul says. Now, back to verse 7. Paul says, see that you excel in this gracious work also. And verse 8, understand, Paul says, I'm not commanding you. I'm not issuing some sort of command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Who's the earnestness of others? The Macedonians. They proved that their love was genuine. I want you to prove also that your love is genuine. Don't miss that word also in the text. So Paul says, what I've described with regard to the Macedonians and their over-the-top kind of unexpected giving, Paul says the word that would sum up the collection that I took among the Macedonian churches is the word love. They had a love for God and a love for people they had never met, and they gave with tremendous generosity. So where does Christian generosity come from? Where does ministry to others come from? Where does helping those in need come from? It comes from a heart of joy filled to overflowing by the grace of God. In Psalm 23, when your cup overflows so that it spills out into the lives of others, that's love. 1 John chapter 3. Notice what the apostle writes. He says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good, goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You notice in verse 16, the Bible defines love for us. And you notice it's not a technical definition, it's not a dictionary definition, but love is defined for us, John says. We know what it is in the context of Christ laying down his life for us. God so loved the world that he gave. Okay, so the example of God giving to us his only begotten son, that's not a dictionary definition, but you know love when you see it. And it's the giving of Christ for us. Uh, more on that in just a moment in the next verse. And so, because he, Christ, laid down his life for us, that's the definition of love, we ought also to lay down our lives for others. But you notice here, how does the passage continue? John isn't talking about martyrdom, as we might expect. Oh, laying down your life, that means I die for Christ, I give my life over to death. No, that's not what John's talking about. Now, it may mean martyrdom, I suppose it certainly can, 
But you notice laying down your life for others is defined how in this passage? It's defined in terms of what you do with, what you do with your material possessions. Love is, John says, an open-hearted giving. Love is a heart of generosity. Love is beautifully tangible. Love means providing out of one's own resources for the good and the blessing of others as the opportunity arises. And so John's point, Paul's point, is that talk about love is cheap. Sentiment is cheap. Love is genuine only when it shows up in our finances, in our money, in our resources, and our possessions, and what we do with them. That's how we know love is genuine. Number three, Paul in this passage points out that the sacrificial self-giving of Christ is the central reason for Christian generosity. And this, of course, being the Lenten season, I, I thought of how appropriate actually these messages are because everything Paul talks about flows from the cross. Everything flows from Christ's sacrifice. Everything flows from grace. And so the sacrificial self-giving of Christ is the central reason. Notice how clear Paul is. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Sacrificial self-giving of Christ is the central reason, motivation, foundation of all generosity. Paul says the same thing to the Philippians. You may recall the Philippian church was one of the Macedonian congregations, one of those that Paul commends so highly in our text. So what does Paul say to this particular Macedonian congregation? He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. In our text, here's if I can summarize what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 8, what he's saying in Philippians 2, is that the self-emptying of Christ should lead us to empty our pockets for others. That's Christian stewardship. That's Christian giving. And by the way, Christ didn't give his fair share, did he? His gift was way out of proportion to what anybody could have ever expected, ever anticipated. No person was ever richer than Christ. No person ever became poorer than he. And why did Christ come? What, what does our text say? That you, through his poverty, might become rich. He came to enrich you and me. And when you experience in your life that one-of-a-kind grace of Christ, that experience in turn begets grace. So if you've been made rich through the mercy and grace of Christ, you've received the gift of righteousness, for example, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of new life, 
the indwelling presence of God through His Holy Spirit, if you've been blessed with spiritual gifts and talents of all kinds, if you've been brought into His kingdom as citizens of that heavenly kingdom, if you've been adopted into the royal family as sons and daughters, if you're guaranteed a place in heaven, I go to prepare a place for you, John 14, much, much more. So if you have been made rich, if I have been made rich through the grace of Christ, then you tell me what's the only appropriate response. It is generosity to others. It is generously supporting the work of Christ in this world. The hymn writer put it this way, when I survey the wondrous cross, you know how that hymn begins, how does the last stanza end? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The sacrificial self-giving of Christ is the central reason for all Christian giving. And then one more this morning, number four. And Paul has already touched on this, but because he repeats it, I'm going to repeat it. Christian giving is always to be voluntary. It is never to be coerced. Verses 10, 11, and 12. And you notice on the screen, I've highlighted two words. I've highlighted the words readiness and desire. So you notice, that what does Paul say in verse 10? You started the collection a year ago, Paul says. That's when Titus showed up. Um, and there was no coercion. You had the desire, Paul says, to do it. Nobody twisted your arm. The need was presented. And a lot of you said, yes, I want to be part of that. All right? So there was a readiness. There was a desire that was there. Verse 11, Paul speaks again about your readiness in desiring it. And what is the antecedent of the pronoun it? It is the giving. You desired the offering. You desired to give. It was something that was in your heart, Paul says. And verse 12, if the readiness is there, then let's follow through on it, is in essence what Paul is saying. And you go down to chapter 9 and verse 2, Paul says, I know your readiness. I know you Corinthians well enough. And he says, in fact, I boast to everybody about your readiness, Paul says in chapter 9, verse 2. So, now connect what Paul says in these verses here using that word desire, that word readiness with his call to give in verse 10. Paul says, notice verse 10, he says, in this matter of the offering, Paul says, I give my judgment, it is my opinion, Paul says, that it would be good for you to complete what you started. What you started voluntarily, what you started willingly, what you started eagerly. You notice Paul issues no command. You can't command people to give. That's not ever a biblical approach. There's no pressure. There are no fundraising gimmicks. Oh, how the church has been afflicted with that kind of stuff over 2,000 years. Being a church history person, and those in confirmation class, we talked about this this year a couple weeks ago, the Protestant Reformation started because, in part because of um, twisted fundraising practices in the church. And so uh, the, the story is, and Luther, of course, sparked the Reformation, uh, the church uh, in Rome was building a grand new cathedral, a basilica. You can go there today. I've been in St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. It's a fabulous building. In fact, you walk on the inside and you walk down the aisle, the middle aisle, it's like... Um, St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York ends here. 
Westminster Cathedral. And, I mean, they just show how, like, there's no church in the world like this one. This is the ultimate in church architecture, and it is breathtakingly beautiful. Well, you can imagine how much money it costs to build it. So the church came up with a fundraising scheme, and it was the selling of indulgences. So the way that it worked was uh, you commit a sin, you go to your priest, you confess it. Okay, God forgives you for your sin, but there's a penance that you're assigned. And depending on how serious the sin is, the more the penance. But guess what? Good news. If you don't want to go through the penance, whatever it is, you can give a monetary equivalent. And, of course, it was, it was, it was set so that, you know, the, the, the more your penance was, the more money you had to give to get out of it, and it all went into the pockets of the church to build St. Peter's in Rome. Um, and plus, the way that they raised money also was, you know, you loved your grandma, right? Yeah. Well, you know she's in purgatory. Um, if you want to help her get out a lot quicker, here's a little chart of what you can give. So if you want grandma out like in the next, uh, next day, here's the amount you can give. You know, your grandma really loved you. You know she did. She would have done anything for you. And now here you are sitting in the pew and you're not giving any money to get her out of purgatory. Okay, so Luther confronted all that. It's like, what in the world is, this is nothing to do with the Christian faith. And that's how the Protestant Reformation got underway is church fundraising endeavor. Um, but uh, uh, that's just one example. It's gone on all the way through the history of the church. Coercion, twisting of arms. Some of you may remember, if you're as old as I am, um, back in 1987, a television preacher, Oral Roberts. I don't know if you remember this. But he made a dramatic appeal. And what Oral Roberts said is, if you supporters... Do not send me a total of $8 million in the next three months. God will call me home. And all these gullible people, it's like, oh, we can't let Brother Roberts die. You know, what's the Christian faith going to do if he's gone while he's doing God's work? We better send him the money so God doesn't kill him and take him home. And so, lo and behold, Oral Roberts raised $9 million. And God didn't call him home. Talk about extortion and using God as your accomplice to carry it out. The church is too sadly marked over the centuries by that sort of thing. Christian giving is always voluntary, willing, from the heart. There's no arm twisting, no coercion, no you have to, you better, why haven't you? It is always voluntary, it is always from the heart. Let me close with this. Uh, the Pew Research Center, which is rather reputable, um, one of their recent studies, and, and some of you may have read something along this line, they ask Americans about their religious preferences. And what's really uh, disturbing in our country is there is an increasing number of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, so when asked about what is your religious preference, now fully one-third of Americans say, I have none. Zero. Some of them are atheists, you can be sure. Some are agnostic. But most of them are like, I, religion just isn't on my radar screen. I'm really much of nothing. I don't really care about it. If you want to be religious, that's fine. I've got no interest in it. But when, when the researchers probed a little bit further and found out, so how did you go from growing up in a Lutheran church or a Catholic church or a Methodist church, whatever it is, how did you go from growing up in those kinds of environments to being a nun, N-O-N-E? 
one of the main answers was because organized religion is all about power and money, and I want nothing to do with it. And, and so I read that, and I thought, how much damage has been done over the centuries to the cause of Christ by this whole matter of trying to manipulate people, coerce them, pressure them when it comes to giving. Giving is to be voluntary from beginning to end. And Paul writes in our text here that it is one's readiness, one's eagerness, one's heart to give that matters, not the amount. You notice what Paul says in verse 12. If the readiness is there, that's acceptable. You've got a heart that wants to give, that's all God's interested in. If the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. So if the readiness is there, the amount in the end doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit will prompt you what the amount should be. If the readiness is there, the eagerness is there, that's what God looks for, not the particular amount. 19th century English poet Christina Rossetti um, captures well our text in uh, her Christmas poem, In the Bleak Midwinter. And uh, she concludes the poem with this stanza. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him. Give him my heart. When you give the Lord your heart, everything else follows. Let's pray. Lord, um, just stir in us that sense that Paul is trying to convey through the scriptures that giving shouldn't be a burden, a chore, a have to, I should, don't really want to, but that as we live in light of the cross, as our lives are grounded in what Jesus has done for us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when our life is grounded in that, when that's what governs and guides and motivates our whole existence, then giving takes care of itself. Just lay out the need and let your Holy Spirit speak. And, and so, Lord, for each of us, as we ask that question, so what does uh, excelling in giving look like for me? Well, Lord, for each of us, that answer will be different. There's not a one-size-fits-all. But, Lord, help us each to honestly ask that question and then let you, through your Holy Spirit, answer that for us. Nobody else needs to know. It's nobody else's business. But, Lord, may we just ourselves, before you, ask that question. What does that kind of generosity look like? What does excelling in giving mean for me? And so, Lord, um, speak to us, especially as we think of this Lenten season. You have died for us, rose again, a place in heaven reserved. May we then, in response and in joyful um, exuberance, give our lives and all that we have to you. We're stewards of it in the first place. Help us to recognize that's the case. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.